0: Invite you, if you would, to take your copies of scripture and turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, we began our peering into uh, this, uh, maybe the hardest of all the Old Testament books, um, 3,000 years old, uh, and yet so relevant today. To imagine for just a minute, we've been praising God today, but to imagine just for just a minute that 3,000 years ago that through a particular teacher and preacher he granted thoughts and directed thoughts and inspired thoughts and specific words that would be written that would be as relevant today as they were 3,000 years ago. I was thinking about that because I've seen a lot of change in my life. I've probably been very aware of life for at least 50 years. Aware of the things that were going on around me. Aware of uh, what people did, what people said how they lived and how they carried out their lives. And over the course of the last 50 years, I've seen a lot of change. You, in the course of your life, those of you who are adults, have seen change You who are younger are experiencing change that you will look back on in the days ahead retrospectively and you will see that what you are experiencing, seeing and understanding 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 30 years from now are different than what you are seeing now. Things are changing. But even as these things change, be reminded that they are not changing so drastically in the course of the bigger picture of life because 3,000 years ago, people were struggling and dealing with the same things that they are struggling and dealing with today. 3,000 years ago, God, through the mind and the pen of this author, laid forth for us an understanding of what we deal with today in regards to our understanding of how we live and how we view life. We mentioned last week that that is in essence what it is when we're talking about a worldview. How we see the life and how we see the world. And in our culture there are two competing worldviews. There is a biblical worldview... And there is a secular humanist worldview. And there are variations of all both of those, but at the end of the day, we can break it down. And you know what? The same was true 3,000 years ago. Even in the life of this one who is clearly a Hebrew, who is clearly an Israelite, who has clearly had the law, who has Heard and seen the prophets before Him. Who has experienced the constant reminder of the work of God from Adam all the way to Him and from Abraham all the way from Him. Who understood His lineage and His heritage. Who understood the work of God in the Exodus. All of this. And He is still faced with the same things that you and I are faced with, whether he will view life and the world and what he is experiencing through the lens of a biblical worldview, through the lens of God, or through his own lens that has been formed and fashioned in his sinfulness to come to an end that is much different than that which he would come to if he looked at life and understood life through the lens of God. That's how relevant this is for us today. Last week we had an opportunity to make mention of the fact that there are kind of two individuals in Ecclesiastes. There is the narrator that we saw that is speaking in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And then there is Koholeth, the teacher, this this proclaimer, this preacher that we see. Not sure who he is. And we have said that we aren't certain that it is Solomon. Some believe that it is. Some believe that it, it may not be. But we also said that it really didn't matter if it's Solomon or not. This is God's word coming to us. What we do know is that it is referencing Kohaleth is at least a king or has been a king of Israel and he is currently a preacher or teacher. In other words, he's passing along words and the narrator is now on the front end and the back end making a declaration about what Kohaleth has said and using Kohaleth, if you will, as the example of the one who has traveled these various highways and byways of life and has viewed life in some ways. And coming out of that, we recognize, if you've been reading in Ecclesiastes, you will recognize it is making some truthful claims. And yet struggling all the way until at the end we see the narrator coming and bringing it all together about what all of this means. We looked last week at chapter 12 in the latter part, and there's a particular reason for this. It's because the narrator is teaching his son. The narrator is teaching his son about life. In other words, he's passing this on about what life is really about. Some of us, all of us, need to know what life is about. This message is not just for those of you who are young, who don't have it figured out yet. Uh, none of us have it figured out. But I will say to those of you who are younger, Trip, Angel, and all of those who are in between, just be reminded that as you begin to think about these things in life, That there is a right way to view life, and there is a wrong way to view life. But that is no less true for your moms and your dads, and it's no less true for me. And it is in the course of this that the narrator is teaching his son in the way that God's Word is teaching us. Here are a few things that I think that came out of last week just as a matter of a reminder can we say that everything is meaningless? Well, the answer to that is is no. We know that there is on the part of the narrator. If you look back in chapter one and verse two, he basically says this is the outcome of what Coeleth is trying to argue. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, he is quoting. He is quoting the outcome of this preacher. That everything is, as we said, a vapor and a, and, a, and a mist, a breath. It's here and it's gone. Is that true? Well, there's a lot of truth to that, but not at the point to which Kohaleth wants to press this. So what do we come to understand? Well, one, is that our observation of things under the sun. In other words, our observation of our circumstances... Our ability to look at our current circumstances and our current life situation is limited. It's limited. Uh, Yes, we can see and experience the things that we see and experience, and we ought to and we should observe them, and we can draw sometimes some correct conclusions from them, but our ability to understand them is limited. Uh, In part... Because we are not blank slates. You are not a blank slate. Your mind is not a blank slate. There is by virtue of various things, by how you were brought up, by the culture in which you live, by what you have been taught, by what you have been heard, there is some some element of presupposition on your part as you begin to view things. That's one of the reasons why we have pushed so hard over the course of the years in regards to public education and the teaching of the theory of evolution. We say, well, our children know that that's not true. Yeah, but after a while, after they hear something over and over and over again, it begins to sink in. And now it begins to have a bearing on their presupposition of life. It's one of the reasons why we... Uh, I I believe that it's great to teach our children at home and we have homeschoolers here and other means of education and there is public education and I'm not speaking negatively about anything what I am trying to help us understand is that we are not blank slates and because we are not blank slates all of these things are being written on our minds and our hearts and it makes a difference in the way that we view life. It is how our worldview is established. You want to know why we put a lot of emphasis in our in our discipleship ministry of our children, and we have begun our discipleship intently, just begun our discipleship with our youth, and that is because that they are not blank slates. And we want an opportunity to write on that slate the truth of God's Word. We want an opportunity to write on that slate as often and as much as we can, write on that slate the truth of God's Word and His principles so that they will know how to view life. But that's true of us. That's the reason we pressed last week that we meet week after week after week and we forget most of what we hear. But we are hoping along the way every week in my life and in your life that things are being written on that slate so that as we begin to work through life and through the various twists and turns of life and we deal with all kinds of circumstances. And the young here, you've not dealt with some of these circumstances. The older have dealt with some, but they haven't dealt with all the circumstances that's going to come if the Lord tarries and that you live. That you will be able to view life and to see life and to look at life rightly. Number two, I think we saw that while creation has an order and we saw that and if we not to go back and read chapter one again in verses one through eleven but you'll see that creation has a certain order and it seemingly operates the same as it always has. The rivers run into the sea but what happens? The sea never gets full and it comes back around and it cycles again and Kohaleth would reason to the end that nothing's happening there that everything is the same I think there's a uniqueness in every day why? because the mercies of God are new every day and we hear from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 that Christ is the one that holds the world together means that he is constantly holding it together he's not an absentee creator he didn't make it and just set it out there that everything that is moving and working in the universe at every moment is being held together. And yes, it is following an order in which it was created to follow. But that it is momentarily being held together. That is the impact that Christ has on this universe. It says a lot about. How we view life and how we view things and what we think about the end. How does that impact us as we give consideration to current issues like global warming and those kinds of things? Well, if we understand that Christ is created and He's created with an order... And that over the course of creation there hasn't been a whole lot that has changed. But if we understand that Christ holds all things together and that He is real and that He is all powerful and that He is all knowing and that He has determined the end, then we're not going to get all freaked out about global warming if there is such a thing. Because Christ in His goodness and in His power are holding things together. We're not going to disrupt it. We can't move it. We didn't create it. Seven billion people pushing all together at one time to one direction would not even be as much as a gnat landing on us as it would affect Christ because it cannot and will not affect Him. Three, we are transient beings, we said last week. And this implies a couple of things. Yeah, our life is a vapor. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We talked about that. But in using the word transient, it also means something else. It means that we just don't one day up and cease to exist. Transient means what? That we move from one place to the other. When we begin to look at our lives and our circumstances and we begin to look at life as a whole and we see ourselves as He did as a transient being then it would cause us to think about what is next. He doesn't talk a lot about what is next. We will before we are concluding uh, our time together. But we do know That we are transient beings. And we heard last week that we'll not be remembered. You say, oh shucks, I thought people would remember me. I don't know how many of you went back and thought about it. I made that, asked the question last week, how many of you knew anything about your great grandparents? Did that spark anybody to go back and think about your great grandparents? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Probably didn't. See, you forgot it. And that was proved out. Uh, Coalesce said, you, you, you don't remember and you won't be remembered. Well, you didn't remember that. And fifthly, there are no struggles in this life that ultimately are new. There are no new struggles generally. Since the fall... There has been hardship and struggle. I went back and was reviewing that this past Monday as I was thinking back through our time together on Sunday. It it took me back to wonder and just kind of think a little bit about Adam's situation and being in a garden where everything was perfect, everything was there. It didn't mean that he didn't have to pick fruit. He had to pick fruit to eat fruit, okay? Okay. Uh, he had to work, and he had been given charge to, to, to till, to garden, to care for. So there was work there, but it just wasn't resistance to it. And then, and I'm going to say all of a sudden, when he is cast out of the garden, he is cast out of that environment. And he's put in a situation where things are more difficult, and there is resistance uh, to what Uh, He was seeking to do. Y'all know about that resistance in your lives, don't you? Don't you know about that kind of resistance uh, at work? Bobby, you know about that resistance and going in and gassing your boat up. You had the resistance of a ditch. And and others of us have have noted resistance to the things that that we do. Hard things. Hard things that come upon us when we are trying to do just even simple tasks. But just think about that in relation to life, there are hardship and their struggles, their sicknesses and their death. And it wasn't long after the fall that we find within just a matter of seemingly a few decades, we have a brother killing a brother. How much more drastic does it get? Things had, things had really come down a long way. In just a matter of a few decades, where brother was killing brother. My point is, is that we are facing and dealing with the same struggles. The same struggles in society. The same struggles in family. Those same struggles. And so, we find ourselves looking at life. Giving consideration to life. We pick up in verse 12 of chapter 1 and that's just kind of a, a recap. Uh, I hope you caught those things last week. Now we shift from the narrator and we go straight to Kohaleth the preacher. We know that because now he begins to speak. He said, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. All is a vapor. And a striving after wind. In other words, an attempt to try to capture wind. An attempt to follow it, attempt to know it, attempt to hold on to it. And a proverb comes out of that. And the proverb is what? What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He goes on to say, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know know knowledge and uh, to know I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind and then a proverb for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge, increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, fleeting, but a breath. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a vapor, and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes, who, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. And this also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because His heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. And if you think for just a moment he has come to revelation, no, he hasn't. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He seeks to view life through wisdom. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's certainly not a bad thing. Turn over to Proverbs, if you will, chapter 1. Let's set the stage for wisdom because I don't think we can understand all that's going on until we do. Now, we're going to appeal to the Proverbs and we know that these Proverbs were written by Solomon and we know that because verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. May or may not have been the same author of Ecclesiastes. We don't know. But here's what we know that Solomon wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness and justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. To let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise in their riddles. And listen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Look in chapter 2. Verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understand. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find The knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice. And watching over the way of His saints. So it would seem that a pursuit of an understanding of life. By giving one's attention. Mind you. Look, if you will, closely. And I applied my heart. Verse 13 of chapter 1. I applied my heart. This wasn't just in passing. I applied my heart. I gave my attention wholeheartedly to seek and to understand and search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. In other words, I have, I'm giving my life to education to knowing all that I can know so that I am able to rightly observe life. And we would say generally what? Go for it. That's good. Education is a good thing. There are those in here who have high degrees. There are those who have no degrees. But we would all, we would all Point people to being educated, to know all that you can know so that you can understand all that you can understand. And is that worthwhile? Is that commendable? The answer is yes. The pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge is a good thing. In fact, I would encourage you that if you are gifted in that way intellectually, and some are and some aren't, I would encourage you today to pursue it. To learn all that you can learn. But there was a, something that the knowledge was the end for him. He saw his pursuit of this As a way to view and observe what was around him. And while that was okay, he did not attain to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Because he concludes at the end of all of this, that this is an unhappy business. In other words, this is miserable. I would have to say that learning things just for the sake of learning things can be miserable. You know what I'm talking about. How many of you ever sat through a class in school where you were learning things just to be learning things and you were absolutely miserable? Some of you say, all my classes are that way. But some particularly are. But he was learning things just to be learning things and he was very wise. We see that. Because he goes on to say in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. In other words, I have acquired great knowledge. He hasn't acquired God, but he's required the learning of a lot of facts and he's able to do a lot of things and he's able to put a lot of things into play in the course of this. In fact, he says, comparatively speaking, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. So this is Solomon He doesn't have a lot to look back on Saul and particularly just David because David was the only one who had led from Jerusalem prior to Solomon. But if it is someone other than Solomon and we were farther down the road, he could at least look back and said, even if he was talking about Solomon, he said, in all that this has done... Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So, in other words, he attained his goal of education. Now, where's the tension? Well, use this for just a minute. And this has been, re- we have been rehearsing in our Connect group for a while. Uh, but the solution to the problem. For secular humanists, is what? More education. If we have more education and we are better educated, then things will be better. If we're better educated, crime will go down. If we're better educated, we will deal differently with each other. If we are better educated, then the bad things in our society will go away. I was reminded as I was doing some reading in preparation for today. Someone had recalled this very thing, not in terms of secular humanists, but just in the course of those who are better educated. Uh, do you know where gang rape is prevalent? It's not in the projects. You know where it's prevalent? Has been in the news. It's prevalent on the on the campuses of major universities. We have noted and it has been prevalent in our own military. So would the very thing that you would think that would come from the best and the brightest is not what comes from them. Why? Because all of the wisdom and education and knowledge in all the world, while it may enlighten the mind to some things, it will not cleanse the heart. It will not cleanse the heart. It will not settle the conscience. It will not remove condemnation. It will not inform about the solution to sin. That's what Koheleth missed. And he searched for all of this, and at the end, when he had it, what did he say? He said vanity was like striving after the wind. And his proverb was what? His conclusion was this. "What's crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Was he right? Without question. All the education, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all of those things that we would think and that the secular humanist and even in his day that he thought would help him understand the world and solve the greatest issue of his heart and that is what is my purpose in life and how can I live in to fulfill that? All of that, all of that. He said it didn't happen because when I had it all, I couldn't straighten a thing that was crooked. In other words, I, I couldn't reverse anything. I couldn't change it. And what wasn't there, I couldn't put it there. I couldn't make it happen. Look over in chapter 7 and verse 13. He, he references this same idea again. In verse 13 he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In other words, who can outdo God? And who can undo God? Who? Who? Well, the fact is, is no one and education cannot do that. And then once he had acquired it all, he had his final conclusion. For in much wisdom, there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge, what? Increases sorrow. It's not advocating ignorance. (laughs) It's not saying, don't learn. It's not saying, don't do all you can do with your mind. It's not saying, don't steward your mind. It's not advocating being ignorant for the sake of being ignorant. What it is saying is, is that knowledge for knowledge's sake leaves a person empty. You know how we know that? One of the brightest men of our age, he's passed away now. You'll know his name, many of you, Stephen Hawking. Incredible mind. Cosmologist, physicist, taught math at Cambridge. Studied the world, looked at the origin of things mathematically. Didn't reason to God couldn't reason to God God had created all the math and he couldn't get there in fact he even said and wrote I don't even know why we would give consideration to the order of the world but he couldn't get around the order of the world in fact everything that he did mathematically was because the world has order you know that don't you I don't know where you are, those of you who are in school, but wherever you are in the course of your education, there is a reason that you're learning 2 plus 2 or a reason that you are learning algebra or a reason that you are studying physics. There is a reason for that and that is because the world is ordered accordingly because God in His in His power and in His infinite wisdom and intelligence ordered the world in such a way that you can mathematically work through those things and it makes sense. Not because the math in and of itself makes sense. It is not the end. It is because the order in which God has created makes sense. So if you're Next class happens to be an algebra class, or you're getting ready to study physics or chemistry, just be reminded that you are only studying what God has created, which is what He didn't get. But then if wisdom wasn't going to get Him there, He said, let me see how I can in wisdom... Just look at myself and put myself in the place to see if I can find meaning and purpose in life just for the sake of pleasure for myself. Because ultimately, if we can't find it and fix it through education, then the end has to be what? Us. Logically speaking, it has to come back to us. If we haven't found something that would bring us meaning and purpose in life through all the sciences. And we know this is true, because when we go down here, even in his own pleasure, he's taking what he has learned in biology, he is taking what he has learned mathematically, he is taking what he has learned architecturally, and he is fulfilling now, he's taken all of that, he's found no purpose and meaning in life, and he takes that and he puts it back into use to do what? well just to satisfy my pleasures and notice what he said and so I come now and I tell myself, he's speaking to himself I'll test me with pleasure I'll test me with pleasure to do what? to enjoy myself and why not? well if I'm my own God who else should I seek to please but me stop right there for just a minute and I won't go on a diatribe about it but I will ask us today asking me do you think in this way at times how can I please me what do I deserve what should I get out of this haven't I arrived Isn't it my time? Shouldn't I have this now? Janice and I have this discussion often. We're of an age now where some of our peers, she's a little bit older than I am now, mind you, but just a little bit. But some of our peers are retiring and She'll tell me about some of the things that some of them are doing and then we always get into the same and it's a cyclical kind of thing. And I'm saying, that makes absolutely no sense. She'll look at me like I'm crazy sometimes. She agrees, it's just harder for her to get there. I said, that absolutely makes no sense. Why in the world would anybody waste their resources and their time and their energy on serving themselves? Why not take that energy? Why not take those resources? Why not take that time and serve someone else? Do something for someone else. Do something with your life other than to try to satisfy your own pleasures. You know, and part of the reason for that is, is back up in chapter 1, and it has already been determined, and it was a right conclusion and a right determination Notice in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And what does it say? The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, you're not going to satisfy your pleasures. So why even start down that path? And I'm, I ask that question... Because it has a great bearing on how we view life and how we see life and what we do with what we have in the course of life. But he said, I will, I'm just going to indulge myself with pleasure and I'm going to do it wisely In other words, I'm going to see if I can be satisfied with wine, but I'm going to do it wisely, meaning I'm not going to abuse wine. I'm just going to see if it will help me get there, if it has meaning. Whatever it was, he was going to deal with it in the course of what he understood as wisdom. But at the end of all of that, you know what his conclusion was? Look in verse 11. And then I considered all of this and all that I had done and all that I had labored for to have what I wanted to have to serve myself and expended it in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, there was no profit in it. There was no gain in it. So, search is not over. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom. To give attention to madness and foolishness or folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? In other words, who should be able to have all that he wants and do all that he can and that it should make a difference? Well, the leader and the ruler. That makes the most sense. They should be the brightest They should be the best at what they do if they're running a nation. So in other words, when we're seeking presidents and senators, they should be the best and the brightest. And and, and generally, they are. Generally, they are. (laughs) Maybe not, Justin. (laughs) But (laughs) he's looking at me like, are you crazy, Jimmy? You know better than that. No, the best and the brightest, they should be. They should be. So, his point was, is that after I had done all of this, who's going to come in behind me and do better? And then he goes on to say, and after I've given attention to all of this, you know what he concludes? Did you know that the wise man really turned out out any better than the fool? And then he says... So why did I spend all this time trying to be wise and do all these things the wise way? Why not just be fool about life? You'll probably have these conversations with your children, parents. There's a reason why. I don't think that we communicate it, or at least it wasn't communicated to me. And I don't know that I communicated it with my two children with the correct theological perspective, but it really does make a difference whether you act like a fool or whether you act like you have sense and navigate yourself through life. All of us have acted like the fool at some point in time. We know the consequences that come with that. And when we walk with a little wisdom uh, it does make things better for us according to life. And he reasons that too. But the point that he is making here is that at the end of the day, everything is equaled out how? Death. Death. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 16. How the wise dies just like the fool. And you know what precedes That? seeing that the days to come all have been long forgotten, and so have the people who have lived those days. What happened to him? Verse 17, I hated life. When I came to this conclusion, I hated life. It wasn't worth living. What is done under the sun was grievous to me. It meant nothing. I hated it. I hated all my toil. In other words, I hated and despised what I was doing and why I was doing. Why? Because even when I worked, he said, even when I worked, I was going to pass on what I did to someone else. It was going to, my stuff was going to outlast me and wind up in the hands of who knows who. You ever thought about life that way? Some who are older may. I have walked with some older folks that that becomes the trouble of their heart. Is that I'm passing on, potentially passing on to someone something that I worked and labored and struggled for. And he goes on to say, and they haven't worked for it, and I don't know how they're going to deal with it. You know what our solution to those problems are legally? Trusts. <laughs> That's our solution to the problem. Put it in a trust. Dole it out a little overtime. <laughs> don't let them have it all at one time. Put attachments to that trust. Let's see how they do with their education and their life. And if they don't meet these things, then it'll move on. That's our solution. Even that, in and of itself, tells us what? We're seeking to control. We find our security in. We find our value in. That is what he is realizing here through the course of all the things that we see in the course of hedonism, serving ourselves. We're even trying to serve ourselves beyond our own life as if somehow it is really going to make a difference. What is the conclusion of that? Verse 23 For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. And even in the night, what happens? He finds no rest. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in what he does. Right or wrong? Well, it's better than other things. But if at the end of the day, it is still about only serving ourselves, then that doesn't get us to where we need to be because that means that we are the end. That's what he had determined. He said that's what it must mean. And I saw that even that is from the hand of God. And don't think that somehow or another he's come to some kind of spiritual revelation here and turned to God. Because he hasn't. All he is doing is saying that it it, it goes back to what I understand. If I'm wise and I work really hard and I do really good, then God's going to bless me. And if I don't, God's not going to bless me. But it's still, at the end of the day, all about me. And how do we know that he understood that at the end? Because if he had come to the realization of the reality of God and God became the center of his life, he would not have stated this last comment. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So what can we conclude? Well, wisdom is better than foolishness. Sure, he understood that. We can't seek pleasure as an end. Hear that again. We can't seek pleasure as an end. We can't seek pleasure as an end. But there is value in learning to be content. But what can we conclude? Well, we can conclude this. That wisdom nor contentment are saving. Wisdom or contentment, neither one is saving. I'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9 in just a moment. Lest we think that what we have just stated is just moralism. It wasn't intended that. It's interesting that this flows from in Luke's Gospel behind the feeding of the 5,000 where physical needs were met but if we looked at the parallel passage in John Will understand that that miracle had no lasting effect on the masses. Okay, just go back and read John, and, and you'll see that had no lasting effect on the masses. All they wanted was is Jesus to give them more. Why? Because they were seeking to serve themselves. In Luke's gospel, it follows Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Christ. Seems to parallel what happens at Caesarea Philippi. In which Jesus points him back to the same thing. And remember in Mark's gospel. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He goes on and Jesus tells him what that means. And that he is to, to be To be crucified, he is to suffer and to die. And Peter says, absolutely not. And Jesus said, now you wait a minute. Absolutely so. And then in verse 21, we have here in Luke's gospel, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, This is not a call for salvation, but it is an understanding pointing to Christ as the end of all things. If anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I will tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus, his kingdom's work, following him, trusting in him, laying down our life for him, serving him, giving our time for him, laying our resources before Him, looking to Him, loving Him, praising Him, adoring Him, is the purpose for life. And is the only way That our life will seem purposeful and meaningful to us. That's the reason John Piper in Desiring God defines defines that relationship in the context of and, and it sounds like it won't go together but hold just a second Christian hedonism. Because there is not a divergence between the glory of God and the joy and the purpose of man. They are found together.